Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to EdTech Examined number 20, Less is More. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you doing today? Doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. I thought maybe we could reflect a little bit on uh, our previous episode, which was our interview with Kurt Newton. Uh, Kurt Newton was, of course, the uh, director of MIT's OpenCourseWare. So that was episode number 19. Just the listeners out there, if you haven't checked that out yet, uh, that's an awesome interview. We've had a really good uptake on that in terms of downloads, and I, I think it was a blast. I think we wanted to remind folks that uh, the 20th anniversary of MIT OpenCourseWare is April 4th, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so there's going to be some interesting stuff coming out from uh, MIT OpenCourseWare, so make sure to check out their website uh, and also uh, stay tuned and check out their podcast, which is called Chalk Radio. Uh, they, they're doing some really interesting stuff over there. Um, that is a good segue, though, into our news for the week. So, uh, Chris, did you want to kick off our news uh, talking about some of the stuff that's happening at Royal Roads University in British Columbia? Yeah, no, for sure. And I found it kind of interesting that uh, Royal Roads, they've basically released these new micro-credential courses that are actually free. And so it's uh, there's right now they have five of them that they've released, and it's in partnership with the BC government. Um, you know, again, just to kind of upskill the workforce, uh, I, I think it's a great uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, a way for the educational institutions to kind of disrupt themselves before they get disrupted. And um, at the same time, uh, probably gives students some uh, exposure to seeing what they want to go and try out. And maybe actually mm -hmm. uh, it might be a funnel to start taking courses and help with the overall enrollment. Yeah, it's an interesting project. I'm just taking a look at their website. So these are offered through, I guess they're subsidized by the, the British Columbia government. And it looks like leading projects in digital environment, workplace communication, business administration. So some of the kind of, I guess, entry-level credentials. I'm surprised there's not a coding one. I thought maybe there might be an introduction to automation or coding, though that may come later. These seem typical of the kind of uh, free micro credentials that would be offered as kind of a, a booster shot, so to speak, to existing education. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, I think uh, some of these, especially those kind of soft skills, um, you know, even like this leading projects in the digital environment, um, you know, especially this last year, we've all had to go and do that. And I'm sure the the uh, faculty there have put together a pretty awesome program just to, you know, uh, reflect on that. It's pretty interesting. I will, we'll make sure to link to uh, both the the article from Victoria News, which kind of goes into some more detail. Uh, that's their local news website. They go into some more detail about the micro-credentials, what they're for, as well as the, the Royal Roads page. Uh, that's probably a good segue, though, into what the what is happening in the private sector. So this is from Inc.com, and the article is titled, How Google's New Career Certificates Could Disrupt the College Degree. So is there anything in this that is uh, that is new to what we've talked about before? And I know that they've launched one certificate. It was uh, IT networking or something like that so far in partnership with Coursera. Is this kind of reporting that they're on the 
track to launch more. Yeah, exactly. So it looks like they're actually going to be releasing more of these courses. And, and again, I, I think it's a, an interesting kind of, um, you know, process where you can go and uh, have one of arguably one of the most desirable, um, you know, uh, employers in the world, Google, uh, is creating these very low cost, you know, I think it was $240 uh, uh, to get uh, credited and you can actually go and get employment with Google. Yeah, so it works. Uh, it's a monthly fee through Coursera. So then it finishes, I guess if you finish it on time, it's six months or less and that comes to 240 US. So I think what they have now is the IT networking, but it looks like the new ones coming are project management. That would be interesting if that helps people get certified for project management certification, if it can count towards that, that would be really interesting. Cause I know that the P, uh, the PMP or no, yep. what is it? The project PMP, yep. like letters are all wrong. The PMP is a, is a very desirable and very valuable certification. So that would be cool. I'd, I'd be curious to know if it ties into that data analytics. I, I had my eye on user experience design. I love usability. So I don't know, maybe I would take yeah. that. I mean, 240 bucks us is not too bad. Uh, assuming the reviews are good. I noticed that in one of the other courses, I don't know, I, I'm assuming Google doesn't uh, pay for their reviews, given that it's a legit company, but it had a lot of reviews on their first certificate and it looked like it was pretty well uh, supported. I think their first one launched in 2018, like the original certificate. So there's, a, I think there's thousands of people who've gone through it. So, I mean, based on the feedback from that, I would be really curious to know uh, if they can keep this up. Yeah. And again, like these credentials, uh, as you mentioned, like with the usability and project management, now you're going into the more higher paying type of positions that you would be able to secure at uh, Google. And uh, so really it's a nice uh, opportunity for people who might not be able to afford uh, traditional university education. And it's also a good, like, I mean, so, I mean, you, you and I have a very different backgrounds. We kind of have broad backgrounds. You have a business background. I have an information science library background, but broad fields, right? I, I know a lot of people in business and my field who've gone into things like user experience design, kind of based on their previous work experience, or if they had taken one online course, it, it seems uh, fortuitous that they chose these because they kind of build on they would be good one-offs, but they would also be useful to someone who already had a degree who didn't want to get a second four-year degree or a two-year diploma. Like that's a huge commitment. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what Google's doing. But, uh, in, in the, uh, the lone wolf category, as I call it of, uh, online education or private online education, our friend, Scott Galloway, who he's just never able to stay out of the news. He's raised another $30 million, and this article is from TechCrunch, for an online school that up, upskills managers fast. And now he's already been doing this for a while, right? Yeah, so Scott Galloway now uh, with this, um, you know, he's already got tens of thousands of alumni uh, already from dozens of countries. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, even uh, some of the questions that he was asked in terms of the interview, uh, you know, he's taking his course that he would teach at uh, NYU in the MBA program and distilled it to a shorter program 
And as opposed to paying seven hundred, I mean uh, seven thousand dollars, you're paying seven hundred to eight hundred dollars. And uh, I, I even know some people here locally that have even taken the course and even factoring in the U.S. Uh, kind of conversion. But again, it's uh, you know. Um, it sounds like it's doing well, and it, I think it's similar to what you talked about earlier, where you uh, might be able to go and uh, not you don't have to go and enroll and get another degree, but you you can get some relevant skills. And uh, from what I have seen and heard, he's very you know uh, good as a, um, a lecturer, really engaging. He's also, in addition to him, he's recruited other professors that are very well recognized. It's interesting because in this article too, they ask Scott if um, the funnel is to get individuals to organically sign up or if it could potentially be part of some sort of um, yeah, business or elite business education. So he says, for example, 120 people have organically individually signed up for their own uh and then their expectation over time is that companies will approach us and say, we would like to buy a certain number of seats. So uh, it's interesting to see how he'll juggle this. I, I guess he has to keep some seats reserved if it becomes popular for business education. And then, of course, leave another percentage open uh, for individuals who want to sign up. He also talks a little bit about some of the professors that he's recruited. And I am just going to the section here. He did not <laughs> disclose the exact economic agreement with other profs. That was interesting. I don't expect him to. Um, and, and so one of the questions he asked was about recruiting these profs, because it's not just Scott, it's people from other universities. Um, and they ask him, uh, you're promising students access to top professors like yourself. How do these schools for which they teach feel about this? They're perhaps uh, helping build a brand of, uh, of the school, but there are also competitive concerns. And he says, for some yes, for some no. Some universities have asked their faculty to take a pause and not engage in any type of relationship like this. But some universities embrace it. I would be really interested to know uh, which schools said which, because of course he has another theory about which schools are kind of on the verge of not doing so great. I think he targets these uh, mid-tier schools that are not Ivy League in terms of their reputation, but are still like pretty close in terms of how expensive they are. So he thinks the middle is going to disappear and it's going to be the low end and the high end, which is, I think is a valid argument. I'm not arguing with him. I just, I'd be curious to know if that correlates to his theory are there certain schools who are more likely to say you know we're hurting right now so uh you know don't go teach with in scott's uh, scott galloway's program yeah and i i thought his other response as well was kind of interesting where uh, it isn't really competition and in some ways it's even becoming a feeder where somebody might take his course and try it out at this low cost and now apply to nyu and actually go on for the the full-on mba yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that's quite possible. And I think sometimes universities uh, don't understand quite what they have. I mean, that's kind of the idea of 
in Canada, what we have with a lot of schools that have continuing education, right? Because somebody might want to take a content course and then transit. Oh, I really love the experience here. I'll transition to a, a program. Maybe that helps them get a job to where they can afford to pay for something else. That's a, if you're not doing that, you're kind of leaving money on the table. So inter- interesting. Um, we have a couple articles kind of in the same vein. Uh, one is from uh, Windows Central. The other one is from TechCrunch, but they both concern Microsoft. So one of them is from uh, February 4th, so it's a little while ago, but it builds on uh, a more recent trend uh, from earlier uh, this month. So in February, Microsoft announced that this new uh, platform, Viva, and I'm going to do my best to explain what it is. So for people who've worked in a business where they use Microsoft email and, you know, Office 365 and used to be SkyDrive, now it's OneDrive, their, you know, their Google Apps and Google Suite competitor. For a long time, I think they still have it. They had kind of like an internal website knowledge management platform. I don't know if that's how you would describe it. I never know what to call SharePoint, uh, but that's how I describe it. It's almost like an intranet platform knowledge management. I, I used it for a long time when I worked in uh, positions and or if I took uh, internships as a student. The city of Edmonton used to use SharePoint. That cat is out of the bag now. Uh, I'm sure that's no secret, but they it's this Microsoft Viva is a really tough thing to explain. It, it appears to be the ultimate all in one kind of employee management platform. So I guess that would be, uh, you know, employee records, personnel files, but also, you know, a, an intranet kind of like SharePoint, of course, Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Office, cloud storage, sharing, but also training and learning for employees and wellness, like guided meditation. There's a, a video that's Microsoft Viva. It's one of these things that it, it's very difficult for them to market. And so people are probably thinking, our listeners are saying, well, why is he talking about this? Well, it would make sense to roll this out in private, but an all-in-one platform that does everything sounds a lot to me that it w- like it would be trivial to add, say, a learning management system. Uh, so you could have the student version. I mean, we manage students at large institutions using and, and people using things like PeopleSoft. Uh, how would this be any different? So I wonder if this is kind of a segue, um, a private segue, a private sector all-in-one platform that could then be ruled, rolled out to uh, institutions like universities. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a, obviously they have uh, quite a bit of uh, market share when it comes to large organizations, companies going and using mm-hmm. their system when it comes to uh, you know Office 365, SharePoint, and so on. So even I, I think this does make sense uh, just even in terms of their own internal uh, learning management like recently we've had to go uh, do some uh, i mean here at the university of calgary it was uh, that we had to go through some harassment um, training just uh, as part of the overall hr practices and uh, i think it would have been nice to have instead of a standalone you know like it was through the PeopleSoft system but imagine if they just leveraged the microsoft and who knows maybe the experience might have been a little bit uh, uh, more cohesive well, yeah, and I, mean, I guess that's what they're doing. They're kind of bringing together all of their things. I remember years ago, I, I, well, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Everything seems like a year, years ago this <laughs> year. But there was a, <laughs> there was a, 
a proposal, kind of like a future-looking video from Microsoft um, showcasing how all the Office apps could be integrated into one thing so they would talk to each other better. That's always been a complaint. Um, you know, importing, you know, uh, dynamic sheets uh, from Excel into Word has always been a challenge. And how do you connect that with your notes and stuff? So I wonder if they're trying to kind of bridge their things together. Microsoft is famous for having like company silos that don't talk to each other and having like competing platforms that, that go on for a long time. Um, related to that, there's an article from TechCrunch, and I actually watched the Microsoft event. I, I watched it at uh, This Week in Tech, their podcast network that covered it. Uh, and the, the article's titled Microsoft Debuts Its ARVR Meetings Platform Mesh. So if, uh, a few years ago, I don't know when it was, 2017, they came out with the HoloLens, which is their augmented reality headsets. So for people out there who are not familiar, virtual reality is kind of this totally closed off environment. You don't see the outside world. Uh, it's, you know, you're putting on a helmet basically where HoloLens is augmented reality. So you see your surroundings, but there's kind of digital holograms essentially uh, overlaid in your environment. Uh, I've actually had the opportunity to work with the HoloLens and use it in the past. It's an interesting, it works for a platform. It works really well. The field of view is disappointingly small. It does look like you're looking through a mail slot. It doesn't have this full dynamic kind of widescreen view. We, we have one at Mount Royal. Uh, it's a really interesting platform. It's like a computer built into this whole helmet thing. And it's, it's all self-contained. It doesn't need to be tethered to a, to a PC, but this is building on that hardware platform and their, uh, windows mixed reality platform called mesh so what did you what did you think about this did you see the video chris did you what did you think about their platform or their their pitch yeah i mean it, it seems like uh you know how we've uh i don't know we probably all thought by the year 2020 that we'd be all in flying cars by now but um i still i haven't even got an electric car yet so uh, but it's um I think this is maybe like the first precursor to where you could have something like, uh, you know, what you've seen in the, uh, you know, mainstream movies like with um, uh, Iron Man in the Marvel Universe or even, you know, Star Trek with the holograms and stuff. But it, it was very cool where, you know, you can actually interact with something uh, just, you know, uh, with the uh, XR side of things. And um, so... Again, I, I'm sure they probably have a lot to go and overcome, especially as you mentioned, like I've tried the HoloLens before and you're right, like that field of view is very limited. Uh, the actual hardware itself, it's it's kind of bulky still. Uh, you know, it's it's not the lightest thing out there either. So it's, um, again, uh, hopefully over time, I mean, these are the first, uh, you know, uh, early adoption type of uh, situations. And then, you know, it'll come down in price and, uh, even it'll probably slim down. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I think from a pitch standpoint, uh, I don't know how compelling it's going to be right now. And it's probably just going to be the, the people who are really into it. And again, the, the early adopter kind of uh, mentality. Um, it, it wasn't, I like their demos. They have the best videos. In fact, we can put it in the show notes, the introducing Microsoft Mesh video. It does look like the Tony Stark hologram, um, but nobody else not wearing the headset would be able to see it is the difference, right? So I've seen people use the HoloLens 
and to everyone else they look like they're talking to themselves they look like a crazy person so everyone has to be wearing it to get that experience but i, I understand that projection technologies are out there to make there's all sorts of things that'll happen in the future i'm sure that we won't see coming what's interesting to me was like this asynchronous so they had people wearing uh the headset in the video <laughs> and and they were seeing the real world but then there was also like these vr av avatars um on the other end which was i guess the representation of the people over video conference and at one point in the presentation i don't know if it's in the demo video but i think it was in the live ad they were kind of having a dance party and there was like a virtual they were using alt space vr which of course uh Tony Chaston at Mount Royal University is working with to do online teaching. It's a really cool social platform in VR that Microsoft bought. I think it was a great acquisition. So they're all dancing around. There's some people like in real life dancing with the HoloLens. There's like the avatars. And I was listening to This Week in Tech, and I think they referred to it as this uh, virtual burning man or something. <laughs> it looked really bizarre. It was a really funny way to advertise it. And it's like, it's a, it's interesting that you could have these kind of, yeah, maybe there's someone on a laptop joining you. There's someone with a VR headset. You're going for a walk with HoloLens and yeah, all of these things can come together and you can interact. It was kind of like, almost like a unifying experience. Yeah. Again, it's a, I, I think that's where these videos, who knows? I mean, it could be like a Burning Man type of situation, but it, it looks very cool. And I just don't know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see it when you actually work with the technology like i mean that would be awesome if uh, let's say right now you could just be projected in my room and and uh, you know mm -hmm. it's like the equivalent of uh, let's say something like what you would see in star trek or uh you know um there's the expanse or uh star wars or something where you have this projection of the person right in there uh again i don't know how much value that adds either right now and so that's uh, that's the other thing i mean I, I think what would be maybe more valuable is that projection similar to like the the tony stark type of interface where you can actually work with something um you know digitally and maybe even create like a a simulation or a virtual model but anyways yeah. we'll see what happens it it's interesting because there's all these conceptual videos and I feel this is like the third or fourth conceptual video Microsoft's done. And I'm like, okay, but you have to ship a product. Do you remember, uh, Apple's knowledge? I think it's the knowledge navigator video. Do you remember that? Uh, not offhand. It, I, I can put it in the show notes. It's really interesting. Um, it, it basically is this desktop computer that's flat and it has like a number pad and keyboard on it and it has like a built-in display and there's a professor it's a professor he's in his office and he's talking to well a much better version of siri and doing video conferencing and dragging making a last minute lecture people sending him notes and it was like this interactive experience that we only delivered on like you know 30 40 years later and it's an interesting uh it's an interesting take. Apple was kind of released it at the time because they weren't doing very well as a company and they released it to demonstrate that they were thinking about the future. And of course, and they got ridiculed for making a video about something that doesn't exist. So Microsoft is not doing something like that, but they're kind of, they're releasing a product or a version of it. And then they have this aspirational video of like what it could be in generation 15 or something like that. I, I find that to be an interesting parallel since Microsoft has uh, was making fun of the knowledge navigator at the time 
But that being said, I could go on and on about it. I, I have to go back and watch those Microsoft Mesh videos again. I do like the digital Burning Man. I think that's my favorite. That's my favorite quote of the year so far. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought it's so funny. Podcast networks have gotten a lot of value out of that clip. Um, I think it's probably appropriate for our, us to go on to our EdTech office hours. So I had a couple of questions that I got privately. Uh, I don't think they'll take too long to answer. Uh, the first one is, what are your platform suggestions for an educator or a student who wants to create a professional website? Uh, we may have talked about this in the past. Um, I think you and I have both used WordPress pretty significantly. Is there anything in particular you'd like to say about it other than that there's a free tier? Well, the nice thing with WordPress is, uh, again, uh, I think, what is it something like a, a quarter of all the websites in the world are 35 yeah, percent so it's maybe even gone up right so uh, you know it's an open source platform uh it just works right it's easy it's it's almost uh, mm -hmm. like microsoft word now uh, uh at this point and you can even drag and drop with their latest uh, version of um, wordpress but uh, yeah uh, if you can find a nice uh, theme which is the, their version of what they call a template. Uh, just finding a nice user interface, you can go and get that installed and you're off to the races. And uh, you have that free option with the WordPress itself, uh, but if you want to go and pay for it, which uh, never hurts, you can get some you know custom uh, domains uh, connected to that and so on, so um, yeah. I agree 100%, I think WordPress is excellent. Um, if people are interested, I mean, I, I use it as my personal site. I don't, do you use it for your personal site as well? I don't remember. Chrishands.ca. Is that WordPress? Yeah. So my, uh, most of our sites, uh, even the ones that we do with, um, our company, most of them, we usually use WordPress because especially if we have to turn over the keys to somebody to go and maintain their website themselves, it just seems to be the easiest platform for a lot of people. And I mean, we obviously we do sometimes uh, the, uh, especially if you have to go and develop apps or what have you, that's, that's a different breed in itself. But um, I think from a website perspective, uh, there's some people out there, especially hardcore coders and programmers, they'll say you should create something from scratch and, you know, go and do bootstrap and all this. And it's like, why would you, <laughs> you know, sure. At the end of the day, it is more bloated. I have to say it uh, load times and other things the, the files themselves, like it just becomes a bigger installation, but it looks good. It works. It's uh, it's ease of use. I mean, uh, you can literally, you could get a website up. I mean, one time just in my spare time to help out some students um, uh, doing, participating in a hackathon, I helped them create a website over a couple of days. And it looked like so, you know, like this thing actually existed and that, you know, especially for uh, uh, some type of um, project, it's uh, sometimes just showing what that end state is going to look like just makes you look a lot more credible and um, enhances your overall pitch. 
but yeah, I mean, and then beyond that, there's other options as well. Like the, you know, one uh, option that I think we have talked about in the past, like Squarespace, you could use Squarespace. And I think out of the other like paid options, Squarespace is probably the one that I would recommend before I would uh, suggest Wix. And the only reason for that is uh, because uh, with uh, Squarespace, they actually do go and have um, where you can go and have it mobile friendly, have a, uh, you know, tablet sized, your PC side or, you know, uh, uh, but uh, uh, for Wix, what it is, is it's basically either you have mobile or you have desktop and there's like no in between. And um, uh, even with Wix as well, you can, there, you can go and create a free site. It just won't be a, you know, uh, personalized uh, domain, a uh, custom domain. Mm -hmm. I think WordPress, it's interesting. I, I am between two worlds because of course, ericchristensen.net, ericchristensen.ca also forwards to that. Um, I built that on WordPress. It's a paid wordpress.com. So I don't use the third party hosting service because I don't, it's as for an individual. It's not very expensive. I mean, I think I pay... $68 a year for that website. I do purchase a domain. Uh, so I pay for that extra, which is like maybe another 20 bucks. Um, and then there's no charge to connect it. Uh, so, I mean, that's not a lot of money every year uh, annually yeah. to do that. And that's kind of my professional hub. I also use Squarespace. I do find Squarespace is a bit better. If you like to do custom code, um, you can get away with I don't know what the current plans are. I have a, a plan that's no longer available. So it was cheaper to get in to a website that you could custom code and do some uh, more advanced template adjustments on where WordPress, you had to get a business version to install the plugins and do that on their .com hosted. So it depends what you want to do. Uh, they're all very affordable. That being said, if you don't need to create a dynamic website, meaning that, you know, you just want a, a page that, you're not going to be blogging on, meaning that adding new content all the time, uh, static CV, uh, something like that. I do recommend um, if you wanted something really quick and really easy, and if you are familiar with some kind of coding, you can use GitHub, which is a code repository platform that's free to use, and you can create an account. They have a, um, a way to create a repository that's a hosted web page. So GitHub pages is what it's called. It's a little bit more advanced because you have to know how to code, but you can connect a domain to it. Um, it's very, very easy. You just need to create like a, a CNAME record or, you know, connect it to your, your host. I mean, there's all sorts of instructions on how to do that. There's lots of instructions on Medium about how to get a GitHub uh, pages website. The nice thing about it though, is that you, it's basically a static website. It comes, you can create what the website is called. And it's not a the most professional domain, but they actually have templates built in that are all mobile responsive. When you go to create a GitHub pages site, you can choose between a bunch of really nice templates. And if you have some skilled coding HTML, all you have to do is change the name of the um, navigation menus and you can just change the links for the social media buttons or delete the ones that you don't need in the code so if you know a little bit of html and css it's actually really easy to edit um, and I've, I've created a number my first uh, ericchristiansen.net variation was a github pages creation so uh, 
it, it's a good platform. I actually just learned how to use a blogging platform for static pages called Hugo. And actually just today, I finally figured out after some trial and error how to create a static uh, uh, create a static website on GitHub pages where I could like write blog posts and markdown and then just save the file to a directory and then it would just show up. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it, there's there's ways to do that. Um, I learned those things just because it's fun. I'm not saying that that's a reason for everybody, but that's a good free version. And then if you wanted to buy a domain, you could hook it up. Uh, and then it would be maybe, you know, $15 a year to run your website. So there's a lot of different things. I can put some instructions in the show notes for people interested in getting started with GitHub pages. It's it's actually really easy. It's a great way to learn how to do HTML too, because you're kind of given a yeah. template. And, uh, the other question that we had. Yeah, and one oh, other thing that you could, especially if people are on the Google suite of products, you can also use Google sites to create a website. Yeah. And I think that's gotten a lot better too. I think they have really nice templates. They used yeah. to be awful, but I've looked at some recent websites and they look pretty good. The only trouble I ever had with Google sites was that I couldn't make a rhyme or reason of how to do any customization in the back. Like I have no idea. It was structured in the strangest way, um, but it's a great front uh, and you can add like a custom domain to it as well. Um, the other question we had for our EdTech office hours was, do you have any recommendations for file naming conventions? So kind of a, an unconventional question, <laughs> file naming yeah, conventions. Exactly. Uh, we usually don't get things. It's kind of techie, but also kind of productivity related, which is a good segue to our discussion item today. Um, I'm going to put two things in the show notes. So there is a, I, I just did some searching, not a, I didn't spend a ton of time. There's a really good outline from Princeton University Library on things to think about when you're creating a standard um, for file naming conventions. Uh, and they have some nice examples. It's easy to follow. They have a file structure and file naming sections on this one web page. Uh, and it's kind of geared towards research documentation. So it's very academic. I also found a really good, I was trying to find a, a concise guide and there's a good medium post as well uh, by mike lord i don't know who that is but he has a post on uh, some best practices for file and folder naming conventions so like don't use cryptic codes that only you understand try to you you know write file names that are human readable keep them as short as possible so abbreviate um reference company names within the file, avoid using special characters. You can use spaces, dashes, underscores, but you want to keep it consistent. Don't exceed, I think he says 260 characters. You know, he gives some examples of sequential numbering, like use 0102 instead of 12, because that way when you list files that are named, they'll, they'll be properly done. I, I don't have a specific recommendation. I think it makes sense for people to look at these examples and then create a system that works for them. I don't use spaces in my file names. I use uh, dashes or underscores. So dashes between, so if I have a title with multiple words, I'll have dashes between them. And if I'm g- then gonna transition to the date, then I will be underscore and then the date, year, dash, month, dash, day. So I use underscores to kind of differentiate between sections in the name and dashes between within a section of the yeah, name. And uh, we were talking about this even before we started. And uh, I, I think for myself, like 
my first co course on actually learning how to use computers, um, well, uh, other than back in the day when we used the Macintoshes and stuff, but um, uh, Windows 3, I think it was, or 3.1, something like that, back uh, when I was uh, in high school. And um, one of the suggestions back then, and again, I mean, obviously things change from a software standpoint, but uh, you couldn't have files without uh, with the uh, spaces you had to go and have uh, and in that case so uh, the convention and what i've been used to and i just stuck with it is having underscores and so usually even when i go and create any type of file let's say if, if uh, especially for us who are in academia let's say it's your cv so i'll actually go and uh, start off i usually go and use the year so let's say right now it would be 21 the month then the date and I just put all those numbers together underscore and then it'll be my name underscore uh, CV and you know that's how I keep track of it uh, if I do multiple versions on that same date uh, I would just put in the you know as you mentioned earlier I think it's important to go and put like zero one or whatever assuming that you're only going to go up to 99 I mean for us uh, it's funny like for uh, the naming convention that I've been using for our podcast um, I've already set in place that uh, maybe we might get up to 10,000 episodes which I don't know so it's like you know zero 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 one <laughs> so well, that's a good idea. I never thought about that. Uh, 10,000. I don't know how old we'll be <laughs> at this rate when we get to the uh, 10,000. I, I think I think that's great advice. And I think um, for, for students out there, I don't know if they teach, uh, you know, computer literacy or, you know, computer file management. I think that's kind of assumed that everybody knows this stuff. I will say from experience that I took like a, a kind of a one day how do you be organized as a student when I, when I attended UBC Okanagan? And this is like way before Google suite and, you know, cloud collaboration, everything was Microsoft office. Everything was locally saved. All backups were manual and just coming up with a system for naming and organizing your files. So how deep do you want your file to structure to go versus how broad, like, are you going to have file folder within file folder within file folder within file folder you can kind of have more top level folders you have to make what works for you uh but a, a system to stay organized honestly it's gotten me it's gotten me employment uh it's special projects when i was a student or even in uh when i worked at the university of alberta we actually had something that was around file naming it was like a workshop and I was like hey i'd love to take this project and work with students on it i've actually done this and here's some examples makes you indispensable. Um, it's a, it's an aspect of computer literacy that I think has gone, um, with a very little attention and it's, it's very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good transition to our discussion item of the day though. So, uh, we call this Cal's books. We've talked about our, uh, our good friend. We we've never met him personally, but our, our, uh, the organization, deep work guru, Cal Newport, uh, professor of, of theoretical computer science at Georgetown University. He's written many books on deep. Uh, so his his big books, uh, first one was, I think, how to be a straight A college, uh, high school student. Then it was so good they can't ignore you. So skills over passion was what he was talking about. He's most known for his book, Deep Work, which was then followed by Digital Minimalism, 
and recently followed, I think this month, uh, his or last month, his book, A World Without Email, came out. And he really focuses on productivity. Uh, he has some critiques about our digital tools, particularly social media. So I kind of blindsided you, Chris, with this. I read Deep Work uh, like a year or two ago, and Digital Minimalism, when it came out, uh, so we're like right after, right on the heels. And now I'm on to his latest book and you're reading the old one. So I, we're in this time where we happen to be reading the same author. So I, we've talked about this a little bit. And in fact, number nine, uh, our episode number nine, Capture Configure Control, which is currently the most downloaded uh, of our uh, episodes so far for EdTech Examines, was all about Cal Newport's Capture Configure Control system for kind of organizing your life. So rather than you know, create a to-do list where everything is created equal. How do you break out the individual steps and really be, you know, what are the tools to do that? But I was kind of curious, Chris, would you be interested in maybe giving a mini review of, because of, you finished Deep Work and you're on to the digital minimalism, maybe starting with Deep Work, kind of what you thought of the book and, and kind of what are the same, the, what are the main arguments? So yeah, to speak? and I, I guess it's um, it's interesting because uh, I, it looks like his books they are actually building upon one another, and uh, I can see even the latest one, even though I haven't read the the one about email, it likely is building upon these ones. Uh, and uh, even he talks about it, like I'm listening to the the digital minimalism right now, and that started while he was writing Deep Work, right? So it's a, it's like a work in progress, but. Um, you know, I uh, I think it's it's interesting where what his main kind of point is that if you want to go and do uh, something meaningful in your life, that's going to require you to go and spend dedicated time, and it's going to require you to do uh, significant, uninterrupted time to actually get into that what he calls just this uh, deep work and so you know even in deep work some of the things that he's uh, talked about and i mean it's interesting because uh, he is a, a practitioner of this digital minimalism but you know distancing yourself from social media you know uh, giving yourselves a strict period of time to spend working this limits uh, the burnout work creep uh, helps you keep focused and especially he actually has these like rituals where you know um, he'll wind down the day um, and we've talked about it again you can refer to the episode nine where we get into some of the details on his system uh, using some of the other uh, aspects like commutes, exercising, cleaning, repetitive uh, tasks, like maximizing some of that, um, you know, uh, prioritizing. Uh, he actually talks about um, uh, different frameworks that you can be looking at how to, pri to prioritize some of the things that you need to get done. Um, uh, also, in terms of the actual uh, shallow work that you have to do, you know, just to find a better way of avoiding some of that. And uh, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's again, it's one of those um, kind of um, things overall, what I think it's true. I mean, you know, you got to go and uh, find a way to go and work deeply. Unfortunately, the current technology and I, I look at it even in digital minimalism, he starts talking about it where Steve Jobs, when he released the iPhone, the actual you know value proposition and his pitch it wasn't about we're going to have all these apps 
And if you recall, so this again, this was like 2007. His main thing was you have an iPod and now you have the cell phone. So instead of carrying around two devices, it's one. Right. And so and I don't think Steve Jobs or any of the people at Apple ever thought that we would have this device where we're constantly looking at it. In fact, even uh, when they released the App Store, which was later on in I believe it was 2009, they actually made the announcement. And then uh, it was funny because Mark Benioff, who's the founder and CEO of um, Salesforce, he actually went up to Steve Jobs and said, hey, you do realize that you don't have the domain uh, appstore.com. I have it. And he's like, no, I'm sure my people have looked into it. And actually, Mark donated it, just gifted it over to Apple uh, because of all the mentorship that he got over the years. But, you know, again, I, I think some of the things that you have to be mindful of um, uh, and uh, I think even just from a, a thinking process and these are things, you know, we as human beings over this last uh, thousands of years, it's a, you know, this evolution of social behavior, but there's certain things that you do go and uh, by having these deep work sessions, you're actually going to go and produce stuff. Um, you should embrace some of the, that boredom, uh, quitting social media, um, you know, developing like a scarcity mindset when it comes to time, because really at the end of the day, your most valuable resource is time. Once uh, that time it goes away, you'll never get it back. And then uh, I also like the fact that he talked about that uh, shutdown ritual. Uh, in terms of the digital minimalism, I, I thought it was interesting where, um, especially one of the things that uh, uh, for those people who are interested in technology, I mean, it's um, we have to always take a step back and think about these technologies have not been around that long. There's been these kind of unintended consequences that have uh, developed. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the good examples that he mentions is there's a gentleman named Tristan Harris. And so Tristan Harris, he used to work at Google and uh, he found that there was a lot of things that uh, they're going and developing that uh, is becoming highly addictive. And so he describes this as the attention economy. And if you think about it, it makes sense. All these platforms like from, uh, you know, YouTube, Facebook, all, all the various social media type of applications out there, they are trying to go and capitalize. They're in the business of going and making sure that you keep your eyeballs on the actual app at all times. And so, uh, you know, and in many ways, what Tristan actually talked about is that uh, what they've taken is from social psychological behavior many things from uh, let's say get the gambling industry and literally he describes the the smartphone is like a, a virtual slot machine and so even a, a small little thing like for example the the color red for notifications and it goes off now all of a sudden you know you have to go and see if somebody added you or messaged you or whatever and just that feature alone has made people get so addictive uh, same thing goes for if you look at uh, Facebook when they introduced the like feature, right? The reason why they put up that, uh, you know, that thumbs up uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, just the liking ability, it was a lot of the comments in the feed, they were basically reiterating the same thing. But now what you're doing by if you just go and like something, 
uh, again, it's feeding into that. And really, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, in, in terms of the digital minimalism, uh, he talks, uh, he wants people to kind of figure out a philosophy for themselves, uh, uh, find a way to step away from the phone, do a bit of a digital detox, spending time alone is really important. And uh, it talks about like Abraham Lincoln and other people uh, like Thoreau, uh, how they were able to go and actually uh, do some of their most uh, productive work when they were kept alone. And that didn't mean that they were completely by themselves in isolation. It was just that they had extended periods of time where they could actually go and uh, focus and reflect. And instead of, uh, you know, with social media, a lot of people think that they can't live without it and replacing that social media with real connection. And so instead of liking everything, actually, he even argues that you shouldn't like or comment on any social media post whatsoever. Instead, maybe you should actually call that person or meet with the person and that'll actually lead to more meaningful relationships. And, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the time that you have Everything has, uh, uh, you know, some use to it. And so you should figure out uh, some way to go and maximize that and also spend some of your free time in other kind of worthwhile pursuits. And this is where he calls for a reclaiming leisure. Right. And uh, again, uh, there's other things like, you know, you could start getting into some crafts or like fixing or building something and, uh, you know, scheduling kind of a low quality leisure time and uh, again it comes down to like figuring out what works for you i mean it was interesting even um, i was listening to it the other day about uh, how the amish we always look at them not adopting technology but it's it's interesting that they they aren't completely you know against technology it's just they try to step away from it and so there's uh, there's certain things that they it's almost like uh, i think you described it as like amish hacking and so they're basically based around that rest restriction of not using technology they're trying to find way to work around it and getting creative but again i i think it's a it's a, a good kind of um, i mean for somebody who is a computer science professor to come out with these type of um, you know books it's it's pretty profound in the sense that a lot of people are just taking this for granted and uh, you know it makes you question even something like social media i mean i i look at it and i i think I, we talked about it even in the productivity like the time vampires episode that uh, we had uh, uh but at the end of it like some of the things that he talked about it doesn't mean that you have to completely cut off from social media but one of the things that i even mentioned to a student this past semester Maybe you delete Instagram off of your phone, right? Uh, that could be just one way. Now you have to, if you want to go onto social media, you still can, but you ha you'll have to go through your computer and using a web browser. And so by creating that little bit of a distinction, actually, it's funny, like myself for the last, I don't know how many years now, I actually deleted Facebook and all their like Facebook Messenger and stuff. It wasn't because of this detox thing. I, I think I have pretty good self-control overall. But um, the biggest reason for me was I found that Facebook, they were constantly and now it's coming to light, uh, but it was draining my battery to the point where I, I, I couldn't even make it through a day. And so uh, I just deleted the whole apps. And to be honest, uh, and this is again, they both in like deep work as well as in digital minimalism, he talks about how, you know, you got to go and question, is it actually bringing some meaning in your life? And that's why 
Cal Newport, he doesn't have any social media presence. Uh, he even talks about some authors uh, that, uh, you know, they don't have a social media presence. And because of that, and it, it makes sense, again, you, it takes some time to kind of get your head wrapped around it. And if you take a step back and you think, you know, if I go and develop, I don't know, uh, some connection with somebody virtually through Twitter or, you know, whatever social media platform, by having that ability to do, do that direct messaging, how much value does it really add? And some might argue that, uh, you know, you have to do it. You got to go and maintain this presence. How else are you going to go and connect with people? And ultimately, you'll come to the conclusion that some of these relationships, maybe they aren't that, you know, worthwhile. It's uh, just to go and say hi or like something every once in a while. It, it, it's, um, it might not be the best use. And I, I found the, the other thing that was kind of interesting, uh, which it, I think maybe we even as academics, we should maybe start implementing this too. Uh, we talk about having like office hours and stuff. Uh, we talk and it, I bet it's probably in your the book that you're reading on the email side of things. Uh, but he talked about how uh, there was this one CEO in um, the Silicon Valley. And what he would do is uh, basically during his commute at 530. So it was just like his 530 time. If anybody ever wanted to contact him, his reply would be, yeah, sure, just contact me any day, work day at 5.30. And, and he's just ma maximizing his time for his commute. And uh, that cut down on his email uh, responses. I also found it interesting, even with uh, Cal Newport himself, basically, he doesn't, uh, if you want to get a hold of him, he has his email, right? It's on his website, but it has to be something interesting. He's actually put like filters and you, he has on his little contact page that uh, if, if it isn't addressed by this, then don't send me anything. If there is, you know, I'll send it, but it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to actually respond. And again, I think those are just expectations to set out. Um, uh, I think those are kind of, it was like very interesting, like things that, again, we think about, okay, well, we have to be accessible, but that's where I think the biggest uh, takeaway that I would say from all this is that, uh, you know, there's going to be certain things that, let's say, for example, email, and this is part of his like digital detox, like if I didn't respond to my students' emails or my work emails, I'm probably going to get fired, right? But you know, so, so something like that, you can't really cut back. But what you could do is inform people that you're going to go and maybe check your email like once a day. And I think this is where us as academics, we usually say that we're going to get back to you in, you know, uh, 48 to 72 hours or what have you. So you have that window. But again, then you block off that time and you respond back to those emails. And so it's, again, just being more mindful of your time. Uh, and it's more about uh, what value does it add? And I mean, I'm, I'm even contemplating like it's uh, it's interesting kind of thing. Like imagine if you didn't have that self-control and you start, uh, uh, you know, start going through and, you know, uh, spending hours on your phone and it might make sense. Like just delete the app if you do need to, you know, even things like news. Some people might argue, OK, well, I get my news from Twitter. It might actually be more time uh, efficient for you to just go and visit whatever like uh, maybe it's uh, uh, the New York Times and just read a few articles as opposed to going into the you know rabbit hole of all the you know uh, kind of um, uh, drudgery that's in all the comments and you know you have all these kind of people making all sorts of comments on uh, social media platforms so 
anyway, so that's my quick down and dirty cold notes off the top of my head. <laughs> the two books that I've uh, digested uh, at 2x speed, by the way, that's how I get through these books right now. And uh, I've been using my time uh, either walking or if I'm doing some household chores or what have you to just kind of get some of this instilled and i've been cutting back on unfortunately you know scott galloway i haven't been listening to your podcast as much because it's it's one of those things that it was like too much of the same stuff over and over so um you know i i think it again it's like choosing where you can get the most value out of your time i really appreciate your review on this i mean i've talked about it in the past um on the podcast but i you know, that can come across as being a total fanboy oh, because the book had a big impact on me. So it's really helpful to hear it from your perspective. I think that's a great summary. I do 100% agree that his books tend to build on each other. Um, and I'll get to the uh, world without email in a second, but I want to comment on a couple of things you mentioned. I like, he, he makes a really good point in his early books about knowledge work versus, which is kind of what we do academic is knowledge work, office workers are knowledge workers versus say tradespeople or physical work. And that physical work gives you a physical or visual output that's inherently more satisfying. It's easy to point to look what I created. Though I would say we could point to the podcast and look at all the episodes. That's that's almost like a handicraft in a sense. So he actually advocates for hobbies, like you said, that are handicrafts. Like I like to build models, which a lot of people are surprised by. But I, it is really meditative. It's relaxing. I take a lot of pride in putting them together. It gives zero utility other than it builds patience. And I'm really good at fiddly stuff as a result. But that doesn't really help my profession. But he does talk about that and that getting away from that attention economy. I totally agree with deleting things off your phone uh, and everything that you summarized. I think those are, those are excellent. And summaries. another, actually another suggestion too, that he mentioned uh, that some people, cause he basically did research with people doing that uh, detox, but Another quick thing that you could do is maybe just uh, change your notifications on your phone, right? So that it uh, you have do not disturb. Some people, again, they'll be saying, oh, well, I need to get a hold, like, you know, my loved ones, if something happens, like, let's say, God forbid, something happens, they need to get a hold of you. Well, guess what? You can put them on, you know, the exemption and the most valuable people on in your contact list and they can still get through to you, right? But again, I think it's just creating some of those expectations. Yeah, I totally agree. So deleting those apps and and I so every time I install an app, which I, I delete more than I install or I use them temporarily, I always say no to notifications. Almost always like I don't want to see this app until I decide I don't want to hear from it. My phone is always almost on do not disturb. The only people that I have are family members. And of course, our podcast team are the only things that can come through. Because those are the things that actually I have to respond to that are interested, like other stuff. Like I don't give my number out to, to uh, students. They, I mean, it's forwarded from my office phone. But, you know, there's things like that. Everything else is, is, uh, is a, that can come through is an exception. I agree, too, that he builds on one book to the next. So I, I'm going to segue into his latest book. I'm not finished it yet. I'm about halfway through the Audible version. And unlike uh, Chris, I don't listen at 2x. I can't do books like that. I can do podcasts at 2x, but I haven't got to books. Um, it's called A World Without Email, though I think the title is misleading. I saw an interview with him uh, on the Lex Friedman podcast, which I can put a link to. 
Uh, it's a long interview. It's like two hours, but it's really interesting because it goes way beyond. It goes his philosophy of life and a bunch of stuff. But Lex is really good at learning about the psyche of everyone he interviews. He's a brilliant podcaster. And he said he originally wanted to call the book The Hyperactive Hive Mind, but the publisher was like, no one's going to get that. Forget it. Make it a world without email. So his argument in the book, as far as I can tell, I'm on to the part now where he's getting into the case examples and suggestions. So I'm kind of, I understand his, his premise. He's building on deep work. You need that focus and control he's building on, and you need to, you know, eliminate distraction and you need to be comfortable with boredom and you need to create restrictions because that fosters creativity and, and meaningful things. He's a theoretical computer scientist, by the way. So he's always doing very little programming and almost always mathematical proofs. And as far as I understand, he is a specialist in impossibility theories. So he tries using proofs to figure out, yeah, algorithm will never be able to solve that. It's impossible. And then that's like the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that he's doing on a whiteboard. He's doing like math. So super focus required, right? Digital minimalism is like how to get rid of the noise. Uh, and you mentioned some great points. I would actually point out that the 24-hour news cycle probably started this like in the, in the 80s up to now in terms of noise. But he builds on those two things. And in this book, he kind of covers those. But his premise is that coming back to the knowledge worker, that if you look at the history of um, production workers, um, for instance, he uses Henry Ford and the assembly line as an example. So before the assembly line and the idea that you would drag the entire vehicle on the chassis through a conveyor belt and people would put things on it, which was super efficient, it was like super slow to roll these cars out. Now, he even admits it's not a perfect example because there's problems that the assembly line introduced. It was psychologically mind numbing and uh, physically, you know, repetitive injuries and stuff like that. But he said it was very organized and knowledge workers can't really be reined in so to speak like that because the work tends to be very diverse but where he said his argument is that we're in like the 19th century equivalent in terms of having workflows in knowledge work he says it doesn't work and an email is kind of the crux of this right because uh we we are in this reactive responsive he talks, uh, you know, industry, and he talks about how these asynchronous communications drag things out, where if you had to phone somebody or go talk to them, A, you have to physically confront them to interrupt them. So you're going to think before you do it. It has to be really important. You can't just offload your brain to someone else over email and then hide behind it. And B, those are faster. Um, he talked about how the CIA had a pneumatic tube system in their headquarters and people were so upset that they got rid of that and they brought an email instead because it was like a much more, even though it was asynchronous, it was very intentional in terms of how you would send messages to people. But he says this hyperactive hive mind method of work is bad. Basically, it's not a good system. There's nothing wrong with email, but we need to be very clear how we're going to respond to it. He gives a bunch of examples of uh, ways to set expectations. I do love his website about how he has interesting. And in fact, uh, I have interesting at ericchristensen.net. I copied that from him. And I have a similar thing on my personal website saying, like, I don't always respond. I dedicate most of my time to, I even cite deep work. I have a hyperlink to what that means. And I, it might take me a while to get back to you just to create that expectation. People are almost always happy that I get back to them 
fast if it's something important, but um, a lot of times I can't. And so he talks about expectations. Uh, he he re- repeats the argument about context switching, and he brings up some in the, his new book. He goes a little bit more in-depth into kind of the neurological evidence to where if you're working on something deep and then you go to an email, if you have to go to an email and answer it and go back, that's that's not great. But it's better than going to another thing like email and then not answering the email and then trying to go back because now you're actively aware you've been distracted from something that you should be focusing on to look at email or social decided that you're not going to reply till later. And now that's hanging over your head while you try to go back to it. So he talks about these problems with context switching. He talks about the attention economy. I feel that this book is a much better summary of deep work and digital minimalism in some ways, because he kind of gets onto the solutions. Um, And I, I think it's an interesting premise uh, I really encourage people to take a look at uh, a world without email talking about why it was invented. I won't repeat a lot of it. It was a, rep- a rep- repetition of what Chris said, but with some more detailed examples he gives. And uh, it's interesting. It's taught me a lot about, Oh, I can use this as a valuable tool, but I can change the expectations of how I, how I go to it. One of the things he does say though, is that the problem is that, individuals can do deep work. They can organize their time to an extent. And he's argued in the past that, you know, not every profession requires as much deep work as every other profession. Shallow work isn't bad. You just have to find the right balance. Um, And he says that ultimately, if we're going to kind of unlock the potential of knowledge work and make people uh, feel like they have more meaning in their work rather than kind of a reactive and jumping to, uh, you know, into things blindsided, there needs to be some sort of institutional guidance for workflow rather than leaving it up to individuals to figure out, because then it puts a lot of expectation for me to tell everybody to look like the bad guy. I'm not going to answer you right away because I'm so great kind of a thing. There, there's some, there's some limits in terms of what individuals yeah. can do. And actually you make a good point on the, the knowledge work. I, I think it might've been covered in these other books as well. It's hard to like, uh, it's almost like a bit of a blur when you do. They're yeah, all one but, now. Um, you know, the, <laughs> again, like email is a relatively new advent and you know, especially for knowledge workers, like you talked about, like uh, if you were working in the trades or if let's say if you're on the assembly line, like you have a car, you have a finished car, right? You've actually put in the work. But when you're a knowledge worker, nobody can see that work until maybe something like in our case, let's say, you know, you have that final deliverable or if you're launching something. And so I think this email is one way that people cover themselves. They show that they're doing something and uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like busy work, I look like, busy. And so, it, and even, you know, to like I tell my students, especially like for business communication, um, a lot of these emails, they're to cover yourself. Like if let's say Eric and I, like we run into each other and we talk about something and you commit to something, but it's verbal, you can always deny it. But if I send you an email and I say, hey, Eric, uh, yeah, great ch- running into you, uh, looking forward to receiving this at whatever date. Now I have a paper trail, right? An email, uh, digital trail yeah. now, and I can always refer back to it. And I think that's one of the reasons why email has gone up. Uh, the other thing that it's uh, I find interesting, too, is that there's some companies like, for example, you know, the ones that a lot of people um, there's like those uh, uh, people that just get all, um, you know, worked up about and uh, uh, just love like Elon Musk or like uh, Jeff Bezos. But 
they don't do PowerPoint. Like they've just outlawed decks altogether. And what they do is they actually prefer that you send out memos. Then that memo will be sent to everybody. Everybody should have a chance to go and read it. So if you are going to go and meet, you'll go and discuss that document. And even uh, as of late, like a lot of my group projects that I give to my students, I tell them that if you are going to go and prepare some type of presentation, it shouldn't be a regurgitation of the actual report. It should be something new because, you know, then you're just wasting people's time. Like people should come prepared to a meeting with all the information kind of, you know, again, it, this is where I think part of it is that deep work aspect, right? Like it takes time for people to digest and you can't just at a moment's notice without uh, all of a sudden, you know, people just giving you uh, the uh, slide kind of, uh, you know, something that could have been probably done in like a five minute email, right? Uh, instead, now you've wasted an hour and you really to go and let somebody absorb it in that one hour and then make decisions, you might even make decisions that you, you know, you might regret, right? And so at the end of it, and this is why I think a lot of times people underestimate how important vision is. Because really vision, even in these kind of, uh, you know, what they keep calling like unprecedented times and how everything is so uncertain and uh, there's a, a lot of uh, complexity out in the world. But that vision, if you have a long term, like, I mean, I look at a guy like Jeff Bezos and it's it's kind of interesting for 20 years to not make any money. Right. And uh, it's uh, Amazon's been around since the 90s, like when the first when the Internet came around and it took 20 years. 20 years to go and make some money well they yeah. could have made money but they had they deliberately invested everything into yeah capital. no absolutely but i mean it's it's interesting and that's where like scott galloway keeps talking about like now there's this opportunity for cheap capital and you just keep pushing out and uh it's uh in the past you never would have been able to do something like that from a business perspective but again um even with this email side of things i think the best we've talked about it before you know, you still probably should go and deal with your email, but maybe uh, those are kind of some sometimes those like shallow tasks and block off time. Like you don't constantly. And this is, again, I, because the smartphones have been a relatively new advent. Right. There's almost like this expectation that you need to be plugged in all the time. And if an email comes in, bam, like you need to reply right away. It's the same thing. I mean, I, I wonder if uh, does uh, Cal get into I mean, forget about email. I think email is like, it is a problem, but uh, you know what could be even worse is things like Slack or, you know, where you're constantly, and that could be that hyperactive hive mind. So if I may interject, yes, I, I should have brought that up. So that, that I, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I, uh, I don't have the best take on the whole overarch because I said I'm about halfway through, but he actually says, you know, it's called a world without email because everyone has email, something they can relate to, but sitting on Slack, sitting on messenger is a real problem. And in fact, um, he kind of considers those even worse, if not equal in terms of like expectation for response. One of the things that he gives a, a, a counterpoint to is that and this maybe is interesting to listeners is that he says, if you're going to come up with a system to where you are not responding all the time, but you deliberately make like block off calendar time to do those things, say once or twice a day, I block off a couple of hours every day to do shallow work. It's not, not important. I don't mean shallow in terms of meaning. I mean, shallow in terms of, it doesn't require a lot of hyper attention, 
But I kind of book that at the end of my day from three to five. Students can still book over appointments if they want. But if I'm not booked, I always spend that time doing it, followed by a, the shutdown routine. I look at my weekly plan, check off my checklist, make sure my to-dos are up to date, and then I turn my computer off. And I say uh, like a phrase to myself, which I won't tell people. It's super embarrassing. <laughs> but I, uh, I do that stuff deliberately. And now he says his advice to people, though, for Slack, for email is that if you're going to create a if you're going to create a system where you're changing other people's expectations you make it seamless for other people meaning that like if your system is to take what people send you haphazard over email convert it into a project management software like Trello or Basecamp which we've talked about before you do that and you get to it in your own time and then don't worry about trying to inform everybody about your system don't make them use your system um, you know, you use what makes sense for you, but then you can't force other people to log in, create an account. Don't do that. Um, and he also gives an example of a way that this has been solved, which is it departments. So it departments don't trade emails back with people. They don't want to talk to you at all because they, they will contact you and have a phone conversation or video conference. If they need more information to have a discussion, you email their email, it goes into their ticketing system. It goes into a queue. So like they don't even... And you get an auto response being like, thanks for submitting your ticket. We will, we will get back to you. And there, so there's an expectation that IT doesn't answer emails right away or doesn't get back to us right away because they are a central service for everyone. So it is possible to make it in email, he says, is, uh, is a great idea, but an example of something that is a frictionless technology, meaning that there's not enough friction to do it to where you think twice about sending something that's stupid to somebody else. It's like, really, would you really ask somebody that? It's like in, if you had to go talk yeah. to them. So you have to you have to introduce friction deliberately. Yeah, and actually, he did mention that in uh, now that you uh, say all this, uh, he did mention that in deep work, and I thought that was kind of interesting too. If if somebody's asking you to do, go and do something, I think uh, one of his approaches was something to the effect of, "Oh, that sounds great, but why don't you go and do this, this, and this, and get back to me and send it?" And now you've actually put the work on them. And it might actually be like yeah. something that's insightful and more interesting. But instead of you going and having to do, you know, it's it's almost like a, uh, the email is making work for you. And it's just a matter of context and now your approach and how you handle it. I think this is I think we could probably go on and on about it. And I'm conscious of our uh, I think maybe something we'll return to at some point. What have we implemented and what works and what doesn't? Because it is an interesting uh kind of thing but i'll put those uh, links to those books in the show notes we do have two of them at mount royal university library i believe uh, maybe they're they're probably at ufc as well but other libraries they're popular um probably now is to go into a good time to go into our last segment which is our edtech tips so uh this is short for today i i just put in um essential office gear that might not seem so essential so i have a really quick example um, which is a, I, I got this question from somebody or I saw a discussion about it on Twitter and it was like, what is, you know, here's my, I went on Twitter to look for things. I shouldn't have done that. I should have been involved in deep work. Um, but I was, it was talking about essential, it was replies. What is your essential gear? And my essential gear or what's been most useful to me is so banal that it's almost painful to point out, but it's a powered USB hub. So, uh, USB hubs. You can get them, they expand the number of USB ports. 
Uh, but what I mean by a powered one, meaning is that it is connected to AC power. So it's not something I take with me. It's at my desk in my home office. It basically has a bunch of USB-A, so the traditional USB ports plugged in. It has a big long row of them. It's made by Anchor. Um, newer USB ports, I don't know if there's one by Anchor, but other companies have USB-A and C. That's really handy if you have these newer devices or micro USB is kind of on the way out. Um, mine has a bunch of ports. Three of them are charging only, and the rest are connection and data. So this is a lifesaver for me because this is one thing that's plugged into AC power. So it takes up one AC power slot on my power bar, but I have plugged into it as we speak, the microphone I'm plugged into. So this is a Yeti mic that requires power. Uh, that's being connected. Now that's connected to my computer. Uh, thy webcam, which also has a microphone in it. Uh, I have my time machine backup drive, uh, a separate hard drive, a USB thumb drive, as well as a uh, at hand, two charging cables, one lightning for recharging my um, earpods or AirPods. I have my uh, wireless phone charger plugged into it. And I also have the micro USB, unfortunately, micro USB charging cable for my Bose wireless headphones. So everything is plugged into one strip that sits on my desk. It's right there within arm's reach. Seems banal, I would say probably the most useful thing that I have in my office. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's all I got in terms of my tech tips. Is there anything that you want to point out, Chris? Essential office gear that's not so, maybe doesn't seem yeah, so I'm essential. I'm looking around my desk right now and um, I mean, my setup's a little bit different. I mean, you talked about the USBs. I still have my older MacBook Pro. So uh, nice thing is that it has usb slots <laughs> so and then the other thing is i have my apple cinema display which i connect to it and that in the back of the monitor it actually has usb slots um, and then uh, just the way that i've done my cable management i've run my wires uh, into just on my desk so it's uh, i just i have everything good to go just the way that it's set up with uh, all my you know if i want to charge my uh, phone or if i want to charge my um you know, uh, my um, wireless headsets or even my watch, everything's, you know, just kind of all encapsulated. But we'll see I mean, when I get my next uh, computer, which I I don't know, even just the other day, my thing just kind of died on me. Um, I don't know if it was the Internet. It seems uh, to be quite a problem these days. Uh, it was the weirdest thing. It's never happened to me, but I was lecturing. It was a three hour lecture and my Internet just went out multiple times and I, I think it might be the fact that there is uh just at that period of time who knows maybe a bunch of people are binge watching netflix or what have you right and it, it's um luckily it, it wasn't a big deal i reconnected i'm sure some faculty they would probably just freak out my worst come a case kind of situation was that i would have just called into zoom and uh, they wouldn't see my face but uh, you could hear me so anyways uh I think this is a good point uh, to wrap up. Yeah, well, I think we covered lots today and we'll continue talking about essential office gear. I think that's another thing you and I want to talk about. Uh, this was just the first that came to mind and I'm sure we'll return to some of the productivity stuff and what Cal has to say. Maybe I'll give an update once I finally finished his book. Uh, yeah, a I quick think that's update. a good idea. Perfect. Well, thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, this has been awesome. Always a pleasure.
You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTechExamined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.